Hello and welcome everyone to tonight's public discussion with Gretchen Casey and Callan Gill from Sunday's episode, Life Forever Altered, of the CNN original series, The Redemption Project with Van Jones, which is an eight-week docuseries and takes viewers into the room as offenders come face-to-face -face with those impacted by their violent crimes as part of the restorative justice process. I'm Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm the founder of Restorative Justice on the Rise, your host tonight, and my co-host is Belvi Rooks for this session and for future sessions as well. Restorative Justice on the Rise was founded in 2011 to provide a powerful dialogue and podcast series featuring global experts in the field of restorative justice and also allies with major organizations in the field to raise the visibility of restorative justice locally, nationally, and globally. It is much more than a podcast. It's helping catalyze and uplift the millions involved in restorative justice work worldwide. For more about Restorative Justice on the Rise, visit restorativejusticeontherise.org. My co-host, Belvi Rooks, has worked with Van Jones over a number of years on various projects and endeavors, including the Ella Baker Center, the Dream Reborn, and the Green Jobs Initiative. She and Deedon Gills, her partner in life and love and co-founder of Growing a Global Heart, who transitioned in 2015, were our honored guests on Restorative Justice on the Rise back in 2011 as was Van around the impactful Cut 50 launch. And both of those podcasts are housed at the website and available via the iTunes app. Belvi has two books about to launch from Inner Pathways Publishing, The Power of Love, A Transformed Heart Changes the World, which was compiled by Dr. Fran Grace and based on a journey inspired by Dr. David Hawkins, in which she co-authored the essay, Love and the Healing of Societal Wounds with Dedon. Also launching June 15th is I Give You the Springtime of My Blushing Heart, a poetic love song, a book that she and her beloved late husband, Dedon Gills, envisioned and worked on even as he entered Zen Hospice in San Francisco, where he took his final breath in December of 2015. Gretchen Casey, who is with us tonight, is the Restorative Justice Director of Outreach and Advocacy for tonight's featured organization, the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding, who are local and global leaders spearheading initiatives in many branches of the overall restorative justice field. The River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding takes the approach of addressing conflict and violence with a continuum of prevention, intervention, and restorative strategies involving youth and adult populations, including those healing from the otherwise lasting impact of trauma. They are offering an extraordinary opportunity to work directly with them during their Peace Builder Immersion Program coming up in October in Florida. For more information about that and about the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding in general, go to centerforpeacebuilding.org. And of course, it is a great honor to also have with us Callan Gill, 
who spent seven years in prison before being paroled for the horrific drunk driving crash that almost killed Ashley Stokes. And for those of you who saw Sunday's episode, the courage it took everyone involved and impacted to show up is massive, as Van had noted. So if you would please check out the social assets for the Redemption Project and the CNN site for all the information on the series, click on the uh, replay page excuse me, sidebar right now during our webcast tonight or go direct to cnn.com. And replays of each Sunday's episodes are also available at go.cnn.com. And for more information about the recently launched Reform Alliance, a project to dramatically reduce the number of people who are unjustly under the control of the criminal justice system, starting with probation and parole, go to reformalliance.com. And so once again, welcome to this global discussion and community. We're ongoing through June 18th together here in this this dialogue forum. You are warmly welcome to submit questions through the Q&A tab on the webcast page, as well as get involved in the chat with all the participants that are here with us tonight. And so um, without further ado, just wanting to welcome Belvie Rooks, Gretchen Casey, and of course, Callan Gill into the room with us. And welcome to Belvi. I'm going to turn it over to you to start this mini panel tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much, Molly. I realize um, the question that I have that comes to mind is actually for Gretchen um, because this is a process and that I have a great deal of respect for and interest in but not a lot of knowledge about people who are facilitators and principals. And Gretchen, I just really wondered, I, I know you've been doing this for some 30 years, but I was just wondering what was it or when did you know that this was your path of service and what was it that guided you into making this kind of choice and commitment? Well, um, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of what could be a <laughs> long and rambling story, but I think your listeners are going to want to um, hear a lot more from Callan and uh, a lot more about the process. But um, when I was uh, in my early 20s, um, I was asleep one night and someone broke into my apartment and I was raped at knife point. And... Um, I reported the crime the next morning. Um, I was blindfolded and uh, gagged and tied up, so I could not identify the person who did this to me. Um, but they were ultimately, the police were ultimately able to what was responsible, and he was charged with four crimes, um, sexual battery against myself, two other women, and a young man. And because he was on probation at the time that he committed the crimes, he had been uh, given a life sentence for doing similar acts in um, in another county in Florida, but was released. He was then sent back um, without a trial for the violation of probation, that is, committing a new law offense. So I think um, 
I think that I was incredibly lucky and grateful. I was spared a trial. I was not in any way, um, I didn't get questioned on a stand in front of strangers and a judge and had to tell what had happened to me. But it wasn't enough just knowing that this person went to prison. And um, when this happened to me, um, I am not a deeply spiritual person. I certainly wasn't in my 20, when I was 23. But um, I, because the individual had a knife, I was really, really frightened that my mom would get a phone call that said, um, Mrs. Casey, this is the Gainesville Police Department, and we have to inform you that your daughter was whatever, killed. And all I kept thinking was, I just have to live through this. I just have to live through this. And if I'm allowed to live through this, I will spend the rest of my life giving back. Just. And I think even when you think that there's a God in this universe, you will find one if you feel like everything's at stake. So what happened was I was a city planner. I was studying to be an urban and regional planner. And, um, and so shortly after that, um, this happened to me about a year later. I went through the crisis center and became a crisis center volunteer and then ultimately became a victim advocate because I felt like um, I could really relate to what it might feel like if, if someone is killed um, because, you know, I certainly can't speak for anyone else, but I, for me, all I kept thinking about was my mom. This is just going to kill my mom if I am murdered. <laughs> she will never, ever, ever get get over this or get through this. So so for me, um, it sounds like a, a small thing, but it, it gave me a different direction for my life and my career. And I fell in love with this work. I fell in love. I wasn't intimidated. I wasn't scared. I was so eager to learn every single thing there was about other people's experiences. Because I knew mine pretty well, but I was really curious. And so what happened was I, I joined the field at a time when Florida's rights, um, I had a chance to work on getting the victims' rights, week, victims rights um, passed in Florida in 1988. And then from there, it, there were just so many opportunities to be involved in legislation and building programs and creating all sorts of exciting work. So in 1990, I had a chance to meet with a woman who'd had a victim-offender dialogue um, through Mark Umbright, and I I found her just absolutely captivating, and what she got out of that experience made me wonder if maybe one day down the road I would ever consider doing a restorative, or at the time we called them victim-offender dialogues, um, with the individual who was in prison for the case in, in which I was a victim. And three years later, I reached out to the Department of Corrections and asked if I could have a meeting with him. So this has been something that I felt um, was vital for some people and um, completely um, not even a consideration for others. And I wasn't trying to ever um, see if everyone should do it or everyone would agree to it, but for those who want it and for those who feel like there are questions that only one other person can really answer, I felt like this should absolutely be an option. So in very quickly, in 2006 and 2007, I went to conferences called NAVSPIC, which is the National Association of Victim Service Providers in Prison Settings, and went to some amazing conferences and met people like John Wilson from Just Alternatives and Karen Ho, who were really the leaders in doing victim-offender dialogues in prisons back in the late 80s and early 90s. And through that, I ultimately met Hart and Jeffrey. And 
Hart and Jeffrey were wanting to develop this in Gainesville and in Florida. And it was an easy yes to say, um, I would love to come work for you. I had been, when I resigned from victim services after 33, 34 years, I was the director of victim services for the state attorney's office here in Gainesville, Florida. And it was an amazing career. And I got up and I really looked forward to going into it every day. But I was also ready to do a different level of work that, that could include this option called restorative justice or victim offender dialogue. So that's a super long answer to the story, but that's kind of how I arrived at this point. Thank you so, 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 so much. And Molly, um, I'll hand it back to you. Wow. What a moving share that was, Gretchen. I'm just sitting with that, um, honoring you for your work and the decades that you've been giving back. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here tonight and for your courage to go into the somewhat unknown. I, I'm not aware of a lot of uh, filmed processes, of, uh, especially of this nature. And so um, thank you both, Gretchen and Callan, again, for being with us tonight. And Callan, um, I'd love to, to come over to you, if I may, and just to open it up with um, if you would be willing to share a little bit about your journey since the filming. Um, how are you now? How are things going? What What's alive for you now? Callan, I believe um, we may need to come back to her in just one moment. Wait, hey, um, you hear me? Oh, she's here. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, Great. I'm here. I just got uh, I just got tagged for RJ. I've got RJ now. So um, I didn't hear the question. Something about a journey? <laughs> yeah, just, just was wondering if you'd be willing to share um, since the filming um, what's present for you? Anything in particular that you've been sitting with since uh, I, I, we're, I don't think many of us may be aware of like exactly when the filming happened. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and then just share a bit about um, anything that that you might like us to know between the closing of the filming and, and where you're at right now in this moment. Thank you. Um, Okay, yeah. Well, I um I gave birth to a beautiful beautiful baby boy in uh May 22nd of 2018. And he has just been a blessing. And we actually postponed the filming of the documentary for 6 weeks after my pregnant after my delivery because of the um you know the emotions and feelings that it was going to produce you know uh, about bringing up and reliving the wreck and all that so we actually postponed it for 6 weeks so since the filming of the documentary um i just kind of pretty much went on with my life, but it's 
it has been very difficult because I, as, as soon as we filmed the documentary, my um, boyfriend, fiance Russell, who is a significant part of my life, he um, he left and went out of town. He went out of he went to the Virgin Islands to work, and I was left at home by myself with, you know, pretty much a newborn. And um, it, it became very difficult for me stuffing the feelings of the wreck and um, dealing with it pretty much on my own. But I, I went to school, I went back to school, started back to school in August, and I really thought that I was going to be able to, you know, just take on that that journey again, just pick up where I left off, but it, it was really hard for me, and my grades just were not up to par, and um, so started in January, I went, you know, a new semester, even though I did not do too well in my last semester, but, um, you know, I've just been taking it one day at a time, pretty much, and um, anticipating, you know, the day that the that the documentary would air, and then, and I was so gung ho on watching it, but like two days before, probably I guess Friday, I decided that I was not going to watch it um, because. Mm. It, it it took a toll on me when when I filmed it, and um, but I do have it recorded, and I watched part of it. I watched the YouTube version, and um, I'm I'm probably going to watch it this week with my mom. Mm-hmm. Mm. Callan, it's so um, just listening to you um, thank you for sharing just um, first of all on national television so openly and and in this setting and in this context because I really one of the things that I was holding as the program ended you know for each of you uh, but for you, I was really wondering and holding just what your support network would be like, was like at this point, and you know, and 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 what that looked like, and whether you had the support that you needed. Uh, and well, I mean, honestly, to be honest, there's like my mom, I shelter her. Um, I I don't want her to deal. I don't want her to have to relive any any of the pain that I have caused her in the past. Um, and I try I try to be the strong one and say, you know, uh, no, I'm good. I, I'm I'm okay. You know, I can do this on my own. But honestly, you know, I do need. Um, 
I do need support and I do need people and I do have that. I have um, my best friend, Marilyn, who is there. She was actually going to be with me during the documentary filming and her father was in the hospital so she couldn't be there physically but she was there you know emotionally and um she was there through the phone she talked to me every day but as far as support you know I've always just tried to do things on my own and I I lean on my own strength and um sometimes it hasn't gotten me the best results and you know that's that's my fault but I do have a support system that uh you know they're kind of like my little cheerleaders in my corner that nobody really sees you know um because my best friend lives in another she lives in another town. She lives two hours from me, so I'm not able to see her every day or, you know, once a week, but we talk every day, and um, she actually has the same, she has a similar background as me. Her char- She um, has a charge of vehicular homicide, um, but, and she and I have, we've, been on this journey together for several years now since the beginning of my incarceration actually since 2009 and we just became like sisters and we just understand each other and we're there for one another and I'm actually her mentor and her sponsor um, in recovery but you know it's I just take it one day at a time that's all I can do Mm. Thank you so much, Callan. And mm-hmm. I was, what really struck me during um, the pre-circle process, um, when you were meeting with Van, uh, I think it was either two or three days before you met with the Stokes, he said something um, that evoked a response from you that um you shared that you you felt like you didn't deserve forgiveness and I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to share what you were feeling in that moment specifically about that and um has that changed at all since then you know um part of me when i think about the damage that i've caused concerning the Stokes, you know, and the consequences, you know, that Ashley has to endure and what she goes through on a daily basis and the fact that she will never live her life like a normal woman, young woman, you know. Um, it That's the part of me, when I think about that, that's when it, when I think that I don't deserve forgiveness, you know. Like, who am I? for you to forgive me. Um, but the part of me that that is a believer in Jesus Christ and believes that he died on the cross for all of our sins, you know, and no sin is greater than the other, um, 
that's the part of me that believes that, yes, I do believe, I do deserve forgiveness, but I don't see, it's so hard for me to wrap my mind around how the Stokes can forgive me. You know, I, I, that, there's just something in, in them as a, as human beings that is insurmountable, you know, there's just, um, it takes someone, it takes a big person to forgive someone and it, uh, that has taken their life of their daughter practically. Um, mm. So that that's pretty much the way that I feel about that, you know, like mm-hmm. it, not that I don't deserve forgiveness, but how can you? You know, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable to me that they have forgiven me and allowed me to come home out of prison and start a life, you know. Um, And it's not normal. My life is not normal to know me. But um, compared to their life, yes, it is normal. It, it It blows my mind. Well, Callan, this is Mel D, and just listening to you, I it, it, one of the I realized one of the things that um, touched me deeply about the interaction in the circle was Mrs. Stokes's reaction, and and I and, and the fact that the facilitation and the space had allowed for everybody to be honest and the fact that she did not want to hug, she didn't feel like she needed to, at least on the part of the screen that we saw, hug you. Did she or end up in that circle as you all were partying? Because what we saw was that she didn't and she wasn't ready to. And it felt like that too was an honoring in the process of where everybody was. Honestly, I can't remember who hugged me and who didn't because, I mean, it was so, that day was so huge. Um, I I don't know, I don't remember if I hugged Mr. David or, you know, their, their daughter. Um, I, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think I hugged. Miss Karen, at some point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Mm. And you know, um, it's it's very compelling at this moment uh, to just consider forgiveness for a moment, if we could, and think thinking about restorative justice in general. Um, many times there are quite frankly some pretty considerable debates about restorative justice and forgiveness and those two being um, kind of lumped into um, the same thing. And I'm wondering, um, Gretchen, if you might be willing to share a little bit of a reflection about um, how restorative justice and forgiveness might interlap um, and yet aren't uh, that RJ perhaps isn't, um, you know, that's not the end goal per se. 
Would you be willing to reflect on that? And then we can also invite Callan to. Sure. So I, uh, I've, I've talked with a, a very large number of people and received emails from a long list of people that I consider colleagues and friends. And, and two of the questions that, that come up repeatedly are, um, can you do this process if the person who's identified as the defendant or the offender um, is not willing to apologize, is not, does not express remorse or regret for what they did? And um, do you feel like there is an expectation that is invisibly or subtly placed upon people who um, reflect the interests of the person who was the target or the victim or the innocent bystander, whoever it was that was harmed, if there is a, a sort of subtle or ex expectation that they will, um, through this process, reach a point of forgiveness? And I would say that for me and the work that I've done, the vast majority of people who have contacted me who are defendants have, that's been their reason for wanting to do the conversation is I would like to apologize for what I've done. I would like to be able to express my remorse or regret. So I, I haven't had a case yet where someone, um, that, that in which the restorative justice circle was initiated by a defendant who didn't say that was necessary. Um, I do think that it's we got it's really tricky and it's it can be uh, it can add to the conflict if there's ever any subtle pressure uh, from a facilitator or anyone else or however we decide to market restorative justice or do training on it to in any way suggest that someone must do this in order to have an outcome that is favorable. I think that's best left to the people um, in the circle to decide and not to have um, this expectation. I think that if we look at the word forgiving and take it, put it into two words for giving, I think that it can, it can be a useful way to look at how to give something back. That if someone's going to give you their, whether it's a blessing to, you know, go have a good life or, um, I'm not going to uh, hold you responsible for my anger or my hurt or my pain. Um, it doesn't mean they don't hold you responsible for their act, your actions, but I'm not going to hold you responsible for my feelings of anger or pain or sadness or heartache. Um, that I think it may be clear for some people how they can forgive, what, what, it, what forgiveness means for them. And like so many things, I think it, it's important to understand when we're, um, when we're talking about the notion of forgiveness or apologies or remorse or regret, sort of the context of what that's looked like in their lives. Um, so I think in a roundabout way, in answer to your question, um, it's one of those pre-circle questions that I think typically comes up, which is, um, you know, how important is it for you, uh, or, or what what are your expectations or hopes or wishes or purpose for wanting to be in a circle to be able to? And sometimes what people say is, I just want to be able to ask them some questions. And and keep in mind that I think what we're mostly seeing on the the CNN is victim offender dialogues rather than something that many people in the restorative justice movement would say is a sort of a pure or um, uh, 
uh, restorative justice circle with, you know, the four primary questions being asked and an agreement coming out of it. So understand that this may be a sort of an eclectic blend of, of what you, we're going to see on CNN in terms of is it really a victim-offender dialogue? Does it have restorative um, approaches involved in it, restorative justice approaches, or is it really uh, more of a community circle? So, you know, that can be debated by a lot of different people with a lot of different experiences, and and some of it is just we may have very – some of us have, may have very strict or um, – strong ideals about what constitutes restorative justice and what's a victim-offender dialogue, and, and there may be camps that feel one way or another. But I, I think that what I've seen um, in the time that I've either watched, observed, or been trained in restorative justice is that many times that will just um, come up as a result of what occurs in the circle and what people share and how they show up. And Gretchen, to me, this is Belvi, you said that there, if it were, that there were four aspects of the restorative justice process. Well, I wouldn't say that there were only four aspects, but there are generally four sort of overriding questions that are um, oftentimes the center of a restorative justice meeting or circle. And there can be more than that, but often it starts off with the question of asking. Um, parties that are present who have all, again, made a voluntary choice to be there. No one is mandated to be there. Um, with the understanding that the intention of the, the circle or the meeting is to try to address or make things better if possible, okay? And so that can look very different for lots of different people, but the four overriding questions start off with, from your perspective, can you share what happened? Now, it doesn't just stop there. Sometimes there's uh, one or more people around the circle may say, well, what was going on with you that day? Or the facilitator may ask, can you share what you were thinking or feeling before it happened, while it happened, after it happened, where you're, you know. And then the, that generally, although, again, people do this in lots of different ways, um, many times the facilitation begins with that question being directed at the person who caused the harm. And then... Um, the people who are individual or individuals who are representing um, people who have been also impacted by the conduct or behavior of the offender have a chance to talk about how they find, found out or how, how it unfolded for them in terms of whatever action or behavior occurred. The second question then often starts is directed at, at the people who are identified, and again, I say this for sort of air quotes, the victim, to be able to talk about the second question, which is, how have you been impacted as a result of this um, crash or crime or incident or behavior or um, misunderstanding or whatever the conflict is? And so there's a process. This process allows people to really be heard, to really talk about both the individual ways that they've been harmed and how relationships have been impacted. And everybody gets a chance, a round or two, to talk about that. The third question then is, now having heard the impact from everyone in the circle, what ideas do people have to address, acknowledge, and repair the harm that has been described? And that's not to say it's a free-for-all, but anyone is invited. And, and in the preparation, there's often um, some focus and preparation, not from the facilitator saying, hey, have you thought about doing this? Or, hey, Callan, you should say this. That's not the role of the facilitator. The role of the facilitator is to invite someone who is absolutely capable 
of expressing and listening and hearing as, as you as Talon was um, to be able to think about what do you want to say, what do you want to address, what do you want to acknowledge as a result of what you have heard. And then it's also a chance for people who might be victims to make a request. They might say, I'd like you to do this, or I'd like you to do X, Y, Z, or I have you, would you consider doing ABC? And then um, out of that, sometimes what we are hearing is what people's real needs are. Maybe it's a need for safety. Maybe it's a, a, the need that you get some help and support. Maybe it's, um, maybe sometimes what happens at this point is the person says, I want you to know I forgive you. And it, it wasn't even asked for by, by Callan or, or someone, but if the individuals realize after hearing the other people's stories around the circle that we're not the only ones that have been impacted. We're not the only ones that are hurting. There's a great deal of pain that happened before, during, and after that we were not aware of. And sometimes what they want to know is, I have some questions I want to ask you. That's where the repair and the, the improving the situation. So one of the things that you heard in the CNN um, episode with Callan and the Stokes was there was a question about why didn't you contact us? Why did it take almost 10 years for you to reach out to us? And and that's not, again, that's not, that's a great question. That's a, 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 an important mm -hmm. question for, but it wasn't Callan's fault. And so somewhere in the process, someone didn't let the Stokeses know, or maybe they just didn't even hear or didn't even sink in that a no contact order is in effect and she is forbidden under court order to have contact with you. Now, if the Stokes want to reach out to you, it will be on their terms, not yours, Callan. But if you don't know that and you go around believing like this young woman didn't even ever reach out to us, she never said she was sorry. Why, why wouldn't, if it was an accident, why wouldn't she have reached out to us by now? And so sometimes the thing that the mythology or the, you know, we can suffer from our imagination of what the other is really like can, can be something that, but for this restorative justice circle, that question would never have been addressed. And I think you heard in the, in the, in the series or in the episode that Megan, Ashley's sister, said, I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of that, that you couldn't reach out to us. And so suddenly the story that you've had in your head for so many years, there's an explanation for why someone didn't reach out to you. So it's not to say here's one reason what, what we thought about you or blamed you for, but sometimes there's there is real answers to questions that have plagued people. And that's what I think restorative justice and victim offender dialogues can do that is really restorative and something that the, the traditional criminal justice system doesn't adequately address. Because I, I'll tell you, I've been to conferences with defense attorneys and I've said to them, how many of you have had a client that said, I'd like to apologize to the victim or I want to tell the victim I'm sorry and the, the defense attorneys, they all raise their hands. They've had, they've had more than one. And I say, and what do you say to them? And they say, you're not going to say a thing to the victim because it would be viewed by the, what, the system as an admission. And then by the time they finally do it, if there is a trial and if there is a conviction and if there is a victim impact statement, it is anywhere from 12, 14, 18 months down the road. And by then, many victims understandably believe you're just now doing this to mitigate your sentence. You're just trying to look like now you're concerned about me. Where was this concern 14 mm -hmm. months ago? So the fourth question in this is that after we look at some of the agreements, we, we start to recognize what some of the needs are that people have. 
Um, the final, and it's not to say this is the only question, but tended to sort of a, in a general sense, the fourth question often centers around what is needed to prevent this from reoccurring again. What is needed? What are the resources to support? What, what kind of help or intervention or support or whatever is needed? And not, not that we saw that in this case, but sometimes what people want is, hey, I want you to be, I want you to do drunk driving um, workshops with us and talk to people who are DUI offenders. Well, that happened to be something Callan was already doing. For other people, it may be restitution. For others, it may be, I want you to get some mental health treatment. Or it may be that someone, depending on when the restorative justice meeting occurs, this could be pre-plea or pre-sentence or um, while someone's on probation. And it might be, hey, I want you to do some community service in this area. Or I want you to take, I want you to get a job. Or, you know, I, you know, th there's so many possible answers to that that I, I don't want to in any way sound like I'm limiting it to here's the good answers and here's the right answers. There's no such thing. But through this, what, what often becomes clearer is how badly people want to try to repair a choice, a decision, an action, or a behavior, and that if we don't offer an opportunity, we are missing an opportunity for victims to be heard, and we're missing an opportunity for offenders to be able to show that they can be accountable. But if we don't provide mm. opportunity, people mm. end up being separated, apart, disconnected in ways that mm -hmm. I don't think it helps anybody. So well said. Thank you so much, Gretchen. And I just want to pause for a moment to welcome anyone who's just coming into the room. Um, welcome. We're in conversation with Gretchen Casey of the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding and, of course, Callan Gill, both from Life Forever Altered, the episode that aired on Sunday. And um, I'd love to, to come back to what you just shared, Gretchen, now. I think, Belvi, you were about to jump in um, and pass the mic to you, Callan. So I know you probably have your mic muted because you've got RJ with you, but we're so grateful you're here with us. And um, my question for you, and then Belvi can chime in, is no, that was how my did question. it make you feel when the, in the, in the um, moment when you realized they didn't know that you were being, you know, by law prevented from contacting, even through a letter? What was that like for you? It made me angry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can you can hear me? Yes. yes. Okay. It it made me very angry because I felt like the system who is supposed to be um you know, focused on justice I felt like they failed us, and it, it still brings up emotions today because, you know, I reached out to the Stokes years ago because I immediately, as soon as the fog began to lift from my years of addiction and, you know, the the living 
the hell that I was living in that I had succumbed to. When, once that started lifting, and I, I immediately um, felt regret, and I was, I was, um, I felt remorse, and I wanted to do something about it, and the system failed us. I feel. But but then again, there's part of me that says, you know what? It all happened in God's timing, you know, because had I um, had the Stokes had the Stokes received a letter from me and um, possibly, you know, asked for me to be released early. Maybe I wouldn't be the person I am today. So that, that's the way I look at it. You know, um, it all happens for a reason. It, you know, I did seven and a half years, and every single day that passed while I was incarcerated, I became a better person. There's not a day that went by that I did not reach on and and grab on to the opportunity to make myself a better person. And you know, there there was um there were days in in while I was incarcerated that you know, I wanted to be home. I wish I could have been home with my family. But there were so many people inside of those walls that I helped along my journey that, you know, had I not been there, they may not have gotten what they needed while they were there. So, yes, it it brought up emotions and it made me angry, but then it it also, on the other hand, it all happens for a reason, and it's not in our timing. You know, it's in God's timing, not ours. So that that's pretty much what I have to say about that one. You know, yeah, it, it upset me, but um, you know, it, it just wasn't God's time. He he still had work to do on me. So you know. Hmm. Thank you so much, Callan. My interjection was just wanting to hear from you um, before we open or brought in some of the questions that maybe are um, coming from outside the room. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And on that note, just a warm welcome to everybody again tonight. Um, In order to ask a question, you can do one or both uh, of two options. First of all, you'll see that there's a Q&A tab on the webcast pane. You can submit a written question, and you can also choose to press star 2 on your keypad if you would like to ask a live question. And if you choose to ask a live question, just please, if you would, keep it brief and to the point to allow for others who might like to come in. 
um, to the conversation tonight with us. I really appreciate that. And um, Belvi, I just wondered if if you might have anything else around um, what Gretchen was sharing um, before we go to a few questions tonight. Is there anything? No, else? that was extremely helpful for someone who is not a practitioner or in the field. Um, yes. It was excellent. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to go ahead and, and open up um, for a live question. Um, thank you to the person from Detroit. Your mic is now open. Thanks for being with us. Hi there. Thank you, Molly, and to all of the uh, guests and hosts. My name is Barbara, and I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I am a restorative uh, justice practitioner. I have been for the last 10 years. And I lost my Come son on. to homicide Come on. in uh, 2017. Uh, his accused murderers are, I'm um, going through um, a murder trial presently, and I'm also going to be giving my victim impact statement for the other defendant, which is a juvenile. So my question is, um, Casey, uh, you said something very profound about the system is not designed for you to uh, reach out to families. Um, um, I'm a mother of a, of a murdered son, and I am trying to actively um, do RJ with um, uh, the juvenile. Um, and I'm afraid because of the law and the judicial system, and the legal system that with me doing all of this on the front end, that the system is going to uh, really prevent me from doing this. I'm on the other side of this work. I'm a victim survivor, and I'm also a practitioner, and I've ha I have been. So thank you for saying that because that is my biggest fear. Um, and I don't know whether any of the uh, other um, hosts or guests can chime in to what Casey said in relation to my comment question, um, because I'm trying to do this now um, and ask for it um, in, in the stages of where I am now without having um, the system not accommodate me as the victim survivor, my family, and as well as the uh, offender who is the juvenile. Um, he will um, be serving five to seven years based off of plea off of a plea deal uh, in youth offender services, and he, upon his release, he will be the same age that my son was when he was murdered, which is 24. Mm. And I'm I'm looking to do this. I can't do this work. I do this work. I've done this work, but. Now I'm on the other side, and I, you know, see, <laughs> yeah, I'm in a very, I'm in a unique circumstance here, which I'm quite sure that I'm not the only practitioner who is um, in this unique situation. Mm -hmm. So I want to commend you, Casey, for saying what you said, because I know I need to do this with this young man. The other defendant, mm -hmm. I don't know, because I'm still in the, um, you know, the um, aspects of the trial uh, with the other defendant. Mm. Yeah, the the ability to ask for this in systems 
whether it's the criminal justice system or um, asking the judge or even asking whether the defense attorney would make an inquiry is really impacted by um, the availability of facilitators. Because I'll tell you this, it's hard to be both the victim in the circle and the facilitator. You gotta have someone who can be, who you're allowed to be one role, but not necessarily the facilitator. At least that's just my opinion. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm saying I'm not sure I could do it, but you, you may be able to, but it's, it's, it's important to um, recognize that if Michigan, if Detroit, Michigan utilizes restorative justice, I'm not sure if it's on their books or it's an option that, that prosecutors and defense attorneys are familiar with in, in Detroit, but if it is, great. Um, if it is, it, it can at least be requested um, through the state attorney's office or the public defender or to the judge to say, um, I'd like, you know, however you want to request it, um, to see if this is an option that this young man would consider with me at some point in the future. And sometimes people aren't ready early on, but they're ready a year or two later after they've met people like Callan in, in the prison. When they've when maybe someone older who is a mentor has said, look, you gotta, you gotta do the right, you gotta learn how to do the right thing. You gotta change your ways. And, and sometimes they're gonna find that support, maybe not in their communities or families or neighborhoods, but they may find it when they enter prison because there's, there's a lot of people figuring stuff out in prison. And some of them can offer some real, um, ideas about how to, to fix the inside, um, of you as well as what you need to do to the people that have been harmed. Now, if you're working, and again, I don't know what's going on in Detroit, but if you um, if you do, oh, you know what? Hold on just a second. I've got a phone call coming in from Callan. I'm wondering if she's trying to to reconnect with us. Sorry for interrupting the answer. Mm -hmm. We're, we're going to bring her back in in just a moment. Thank you, Kristen. Okay. So, what I would say to you is that um, it, it's a big ask, but if it's a really important um, need that you have to be able to speak with this young man um, is whether or not someone would be able to be able to express your request. It may have to be through the defense attorney or, or maybe the young man's family to see if if there's any window there for this person to um, to, to accept the invitation. I mean, I, I'm someone that really believes that when we don't invite people who we label as offenders to repair harm after wrongdoing, we are creating individuals who are further disconnected from concern for other human beings. So, you know, I don't know anything, obviously, about your, your, the tragic loss of your beautiful son. I don't know anything about the circumstances of the case. But I, I certainly hope that there's an opening or a window that at some point in the future, this young man, his family, and the, the system will at least entertain your request to see if now or some point in the future you the opportunity to meet, to speak, to listen, and to perhaps ask questions and um, address some of the harm that you live with. And, and uh, maybe that will be something that turns from a possibility into a reality. And I certainly hope that's the case for you. Thank you. Hey, Barbara, thank you just want to thank you very much for being here with us tonight. And um, Please stay in touch. Uh, get in touch with us through the email if you wish. We would be glad to help connect you in any way we can with um, more resources and support. Um, and at thank this you, moment, I'd, I'd absolutely, Barbara, thank you. And um, 
At this moment, we're going to go ahead and take a pause just to bring, don't go anywhere, but we are going to dial Callan back in. So you might hear a dial tone for a moment, and then she'll be back in the room with us. Thank you. Callan, welcome back. We're so glad Hello. to have you back. Yeah, oh. you're here. We can hear you great. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So we were just we were just having um a conversation with Barbara and I wondered if you caught any of that and if you did, if you have anything you'd like to respond to I did around not catch, what she was sharing. Okay. I didn't catch any of it. Okay. No problem. So just again, um, would love to warmly welcome questions through the Q&A tab, uh, which is placed at the webcast page. There's also important links at the webcast page for you for more information about the Redemption Project. And also, as I shared at the opening of tonight's discussion, many of you are asking, how, how do I watch an episode that I missed? Well, one great way is to go to CNN, or excuse me, go cnn.com you can sign in with your you television that, provider that way go.cnn.com you also can get a fairly cheap $15 a month subscription to Sling Television using uh, the Roku box if you have one of those Sling Television is a provider of um, CNN and also allows for you to use a DVR function to record um, selected um, shows. So that's a great uh, tool to have if, if you don't have that in place already. Um, so again, for those of you that would like to ask a live question, star two on your telephone keypad, you're also warmly welcomed to submit questions through the webcast page tonight. And of course, we're talking with Gretchen Casey from the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding, an extraordinary um, leader in the field of restorative justice based in Florida, but really truly a global leader in restorative practices and also social emotional learning and great skills, um, recognizing the importance of recognizing, or excuse me, I repeat myself, of trauma-informed practices. So um, the River Phoenix Center has done a lot of work with police, youth, community relations, and they've really grown from one relationship at a time um, into so many aspects of society. So I want to acknowledge and thank them. Um, also want to acknowledge and thank Van Jones and his team for the blood, sweat, and tears that they've put into this series and um, just how beautifully authentic um, they have presented uh, these these cases. So thank you, Van, and thank you to everyone at Reform Alliance, Dream Corps, and um, Cut 50, and everybody else involved in the production. Um, so let's go back to questions, um, and I want to check in with my co-host, Belvi. Is there anything that you'd like to touch in on around what Barbara shared? Uh, no, not a, no, 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 I'm okay. I already, All right. yeah. Thank you. And so um, we have a question from John, and uh, perhaps 
Well, this, this would be a great question for you both, Callan and Gretchen. So whoever would like to start, um, please chime in. Um, and he asks, what does restorative justice offer that traditional justice can or does not? And I know we've kind of woven some of those um, points in already tonight, but would one of you be willing to start with what your experience, uh, uh, what does restorative justice provide or offer that traditional justice can or does not offer to all stakeholders? Alan, you want to be first? Hey, Callan, you want to no, go first? No, meeting? no, you can you can go first. Okay. Well, um, I think that the criminal justice system often focuses on what is the evidence um, that we can we prove this crime. So, you know, if, if we if we only look at crime as a dispute about the facts, um, we may never get to the part about who has been harmed, how have they been harmed, which is m much more of a central focus of restorative justice. Um, I think that the criminal justice system often focuses on, well, what is the punishment that goes with this crime? What does the scoring guideline sheet say a person should get for this number of points for the crime and whether a weapon was used or whether there was injury or how many priors? And, and I think that that was developed so that we would have some consistency across all cases. But I think that whenever we use sort of a, a one large T-shirt to fit every size of human being, what we have unfortunately built is a criminal justice system that hasn't been focusing on the context and the impact and the harm that has occurred. And so, therefore, you know, I can't speak for every single state in, in America, but most states, when you commit a, a, a crime, it's not the family of Ashley Stokes versus Callan Gill, it's the state of Louisiana versus Callan Gill. And so in many ways, the victim is, is pretty much removed other than when their testimony is needed or required in the process. Um, it's also a very, very lengthy process. And restorative justice isn't something that can, that can occur in, in a week either in, in serious um, violent felony cases. But I think that what it offers is what, what I think restorative uh, justice can offer is, is that I really believe that a person who has harmed someone should be invited to increase their human capacity to demonstrate empathy and repair and, and, uh, and the ability to address through accountability directly with the victim. That is, the parties that were most directly impacted, if we can create a safe, facilitated conversation, that that is something that is not even generally allowed in the criminal justice system. It's just not. Because the vast majority of offenders have a standard no contact order with their victims. And in the court system, the victim and the offender do not ever face each other. They're separated. In fact, the offender sits through the trial in probably 95% of the cases in which there's a trial. And the victim is, in the vast majority of cases, is removed from the courtroom except for when they are testifying. And so when there are no opportunities to speak with and listen to and ask questions that you may have that are different than the questions that a prosecutor has, we are missing the opportunity. We are denying people the opportunity to meet, to be heard, and to feel believed 
and um, and inviting the person who's the offender in this in these types of cases um, an opportunity to express and demonstrate accountability and empathy. And that's what I think happens through restorative justice conversations that is currently missing in the, the traditional criminal justice or adversarial um, court system. Thank you, Gretchen. And Callan, would you like to add to that at all? Yes, I, I would. Um, and and I I agree with what Gretchen said because there's the the justice system is focused on the laws. They have a set standard. They have a set book of rules. You might as well say that they go by, and that's that's what guides them. Restorative justice allows the heart to lead the way. There is no set standard. It's what the victims want and what, um, and they, they, like Gretchen said, it allows the offenders a say and allows the offenders to put their input in and gives them a chance to you know, show that there is change can happen. And a lot of times crimes are committed for reasons way other than what the justice system thinks or makes it out to be done for. And I don't, I don't know if that made sense, but someone like myself, okay, I, I was drinking and driving. I didn't just one day drink um, a half, a fifth of, of vodka and drink, you know, a pint of whiskey and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to get behind the wheel. And I'm going to drive today. No, that's not how it happened. I drove every day drunk. And I thought I drove better drunk. But there was something more underlying and something deeper within me as a person because I am a human being. And there was something way deeper driving that than just alcohol. You know, so restorative Mm -hmm. justice um, lets, it it allows the offender to have their say and actually express to the victims why they are who they are. And it wasn't just a crime committed. It really, you know, it may not have been an accident because an accident is is an accident and you know a crime committed is you consciously choose to do something against the law and but there's something far deeper driving that so you know the and like the justice system the justice system has a book 
they have a set laws that that they go by, and you know they don't stray from that. And that's that's pretty much you know that's it. And and I think and I and to add to what Callan is saying and to John's question, you know they're really. It may be hard for people to believe this, but who you are at 23 may be very different than who you become at 33. And mm-hmm. yes, and I think that that there are also people that really do feel empathy and do want to try to do the right thing, and are capable of alleviating harm. But we haven't allowed them to have the chance to do that. We we sometimes put people in boxes and say, this person is a monster. This person doesn't deserve a second chance. This person deserves to rot in jail. And I think we've got to be really careful about that because we all may feel that way when the other is a stranger that we have no relationship or connection to. But I, I tell you, I bet it would be different if it was your son, your daughter, your, your mother or father. You would want them to have a, ch- a chance for the world to realize they are more than this one gigantic mm. painful mistake. They are capable of also doing something good. They are, if we have people, and Kellen's a, a, a good demonstration of that, she's not the only person sitting or has been in jail who, if invited, would, would say, yes, I'm willing to do whatever the Stokes ask of me in terms of meeting with them. I'm willing to face them and, and listen to all the pain I have caused. She's not the only one. And these eight stories that are highlighted on CNN are really the tip of the iceberg. And we're not, I, I want people who are listening to really understand, we're not saying you go to restorative justice and you never serve a day in, in, in jail or, or prison. Some cases people are going to be sentenced and that. That isn't the end of their life. We want people who, whether they stay in prison or whether they one day come out, to be invited to become more capable of being human and humane. Because here's, here's the truth of our lives. My life is better when everyone else's life is, is good, is better. And when, and when we keep putting people into whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit prisons, and we don't do anything to re- rehabilitate, repair, and invite accountability and empathy, I'm going to say it again. We are creating individuals who are further disconnected from concern for other human beings. And that's on us. And so the beautiful thing about all this criminal justice reform is it, there is a huge opportunity for people to learn about restorative justice as a means of criminal justice reform, accountability, allowing victims to be heard, to be able to ask questions that have gone unanswered for far far too long. Mm. It could be said that restorative justice has a lens on humanizing the justice system. From what I'm hearing from both of you, that the act does not eternally define the person. And I'd love to, if I may, just extend, uh, we may go over for a few minutes, if it's all right with the two of you. Um, there, we, we have just a slight bit amount of time um, for a brief live question, one more. Um, I'd like to invite 
the participant from Alaska. Um, your mic is open. If you wouldn't mind keeping it brief and a warm welcome to you. Thank you. My name is Diane Boyd, and I have a husband that has been incarcerated for 35 years for murder. Um, he had two VODs 20 years ago with the victim's daughter. He was just up for parole last April and was denied a set-off of 10 years. And we, I belong to a restorative justice group here in Alaska, but we don't have anything in place. And we're trying to find out, I guess is my question, how do we go about having a victims of offender dialogue with the nieces that appeared before the parole board and which created a set off of 10 years from the social media uh, blast that he got. Is that something you could comment on or kind of steer me in the right direction? Because I don't think we have anything here in place for that in Alaska. Well, this is Gretchen, and um, I have never practiced in Alaska, but you asked um, a, a question that sounds like it um, needs some attention. What I would tell you is that I believe in the CNN stories, if, and someone correct me if I misstate this, is that one of the um, restorative justice uh, episodes is going to feature the very first, what they thought was um, re restorative justice um, meeting held in Alaska. Right. And it may be possible to find out not only who is doing this work, but whether or not um, it's possible to find out, whether through social media or otherwise, whether or not a facilitator is even available to see if the parties, these nieces, are in any way interested in having a conversation um, for the purpose of trying to address the harm, the uh, whatever. But I don't know, and I right. also don't know if there is a fee or a charge, and I also don't know, um, you know, if if there's only maybe, you know, a dozen providers and they're all in Anchorage, but they, they may not serve the rest of the, the state. I have no idea about that. But there is something called the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice, NACRJ. And on their website, they have a directory of service providers. And it may be that a quick look at their website and their directory, you may be able to find someone in your community and they generally have a contact information like an email or a phone number, and you may be able to um, reach out to someone. Or it may be that as a result of this kind of conversation, this sort of justice on the rise, someone may be able to reach out or um, uh, alert you or do something in their newspaper or on their radio shows to let more people in Alaska know what is available or growing in the area of restorative justice. Okay, that's great. Because I do know the party that is on this Redemption Project show with Van Jones. I know her personally. And I know that mm. she was going to – She yes, she's a very good friend of mine. And I also know that she went uh, – she was up for a grant to see if we couldn't get that – started here in Alaska. However, she wasn't awarded that grant. So we're kind of at a standstill at this moment. Well, I don't know how many people know this who are listening, but there is something called a VOCA grant, Victims of Crime Act. It's federal monies that are um, collected through fines and forfeitures, and then are um, they go through each state. Um, many, in many cases, it goes through the Attorney General's office. That's how it happens in Florida. And restorative justice is one of the allowable um, uh, 
services that can be funded by VOCA grants. And so maybe one of the things that will come out of this tremendous um, sort of spotlight that Van Jones and CNN is placing on RJ is that more um, victim advocate programs, more programs will uh, seek out funding to provide restorative justice so that it doesn't have to be um, paid for either by an offender or um, by the family of a victim, and it can be more universally available, at least in every state, hopefully by the next two, three, or four or five years. It would be something that if people want that as an option, it can be considered just as much as counseling or therapy or group support um, or anything else. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Those are really important questions and yes, and thank you, Gretchen. Great information to share with everyone. Um, really important and critical. Um and I I back Gretchen up on um the point that the National Association for Community and Restorative Justice offers a powerful wheelhouse of directory um resources state-by-state, as well as white papers and um, an upcoming conference, which already has 1,500 people registered, that will be in Denver in June, and hopefully we'll get to see a lot of you out there. Um, That's nacrj.org. Really want to thank everyone for their questions tonight. If you submitted a question and it wasn't answered, we'll make sure to connect you with Gretchen and Callan with those questions. And I'd just like to wind it down. Um, Don't go away. We're going to have closing comments. But just want to remind everyone that the Redemption Project is an eight-week series, and it runs through June 16th, which is this last Sunday episode. And we will be hosting discussions every Tuesday through June 18th. And next week's discussion will be with Don Lacey, um, who is the father of a beautiful daughter who was murdered, and his work with um, the author or offender in um, the next episode, which is scheduled for this Sunday, again, at 9 p.m. Eastern, um, 6 Pacific. I hope everybody also found our suggestions useful about watching replays, again, go.cnn.com and of course all the information about the Redemption Project is at CNN. Um, You can also find some useful links for the um, Center for, excuse me, the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding as well as the Dialogue uh, and Discussion Series website on the webcast page. So I'd love to invite my wonderful co-host Belvi Rooks to help close us out tonight. And um, Belvi, would you be willing to open us up for some closing comments? Well, I just really want to thank Gretchen and Caitlin and just for the the commitment and the courage and the willingness and Deep, 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 deep gratitude uh, because it appears and, 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 and we that there is just there are options and alternatives and possibilities available that we have not yet begun to explore, and that 
you are helping us by sharing and by being and by your presence expand the conversation and deepen the dialogue. Uh, very, that's very much needed as part of a healing process. Um, and so I just really am deeply grateful to just be present and to witness the emerging possibilities. Mm, thank you. Thank you, Belvi. Thank you so much for co-hosting with me. And Callan, wondering if you'd like to leave us with any closing thoughts. Um, no, I just, I, I thank you for having me. And I hope that, um, you know, what I said was, was helpful and insightful to, you know, to anyone who is listening. And I, I'm open to ask to answering any questions that someone that is listening may have, you know, any questions that may have been needed to be answered, um, I'm available and open to anything. So I'm an open book, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, Callan, for Thank being you. with us tonight. Thank and just best of everything to you and your beautiful son and family. Oh, thank you. A little ham. <laughs> I'm, ru- I'm rubbing on right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And Gretchen, thanks so much for being with us. Any closing thoughts or reflections before we go well i'm i'm indebted to jeffrey and hart and the river phoenix center for um asking me to join them inviting me to be part of their trainings, allowing me to be sometimes an outspoken advocate um about what i think is something that's really useful and helpful for some cases maybe not all cases but i think it's an option that i'd like to see expand around the united states and um, and I appreciate the attention that not only RJ on the Rise and Van Jones and, and Citizen, Jones, <laughs> Citizen Jones has done in terms of production. Um, I, I want you to know that as, as hard and as painful as it can sometimes be to, to listen to heartache, and, which is just another form of love, <laughs> and grief and and what restorative justice asks of people like Callan and the, the Stokes to describe is completely tempered by just how beautiful and how amazing and how brave and how kind and how decent this process is to be a part of to witness, and to perhaps, you know, be part of the conversation. And um, and I'm very, very grateful that I had a chance to do this circle with this family and Callan and to meet RJ and Russell. And and I, I also hope that people realize that the eight of us that 
got selected to do this are just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many amazing people that come from many different styles and philosophies, but shared principles um, who are trying to make a difference in this world, trying to address harm and conflict. And and I, I really hope that this spotlight that CNN is doing through the Redemption Project will really invite people to look at training that's available in their states or in their communities and that they understand that while this restorative justice spotlight has been on very serious violent crimes and cases, there's all sorts of amazing work that's being done in schools, in communities, and um, and while the, the spotlight isn't on that in this series, there's just so much exciting work and research and conversations that are taking place in prisons, in schools, in communities, um, in university settings, um, even cases that involve sexual violence that are really going to inform what we know and what we think we know about what helps heal people after harm. And I'm just grateful to have played a teeny tiny um, part in, in this particular story. And um, so thank you for inviting us to be on the, the show tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Gretchen. And before we sign off, um, just want to place a heartfelt just moment towards the Stokes family who couldn't be with us tonight and to Ashley. And just if we could take a moment, just brief pause, and then we'll sign off. So with Ashley and her family in our hearts and minds, we close this discussion tonight with gratitude to all of you for being here with us. And, of course, on behalf of my co-host, Belvie Rooks, I'm Molly Rowan Leach. I'm the founder of Restorative Justice on the Rise, and it's always an honor to be a part of these conversations, which you are an integral part of. And would really encourage everyone to find out more about the River Phoenix Center and their programs, including the October Peacebuilder Immersion Program, centerforpeacebuilding.org. So thank you, everyone. We will see you next Tuesday at this same time frame with Don Lacey and others from this Sunday's upcoming episode of The Redemption Project. Thank you all and good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you, Molly.